uh, we have a very meaty passage today. There's lots to chew on, a densely packed one. It's one of those ones that you could spend um, hours on, and the more time you spend in it, the more you're going to understand it, see the big picture, see the logical flow of it, and, and, and grasp what it's saying. So before we uh, read through it, I'm going to read, and I am going to read through the whole thing here up front, but before we do that, I want to suggest the big idea, the unifying thread that pulls it, holds this together so that you can see that as we read it, and also see if that's the case. Uh, so the first chapter of Hebrews is all about, is focused on Jesus's divinity, that Jesus is nothing less than God in the flesh. Jesus' divinity. We, we read there that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He was there at the beginning in creation. He is the one, the heir of all things who will be there at the end. He did not merely come from God. He was not merely a messenger sent from God. He is God. And remember, this is written at a time when Jesus was the, that man who lived not too long ago. That man who many saw and heard and we're with that man, the author of Hebrews is saying, and the rest of Scripture affirms, is God. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, and, and this passage before us today, focuses on Jesus' humanity. That Jesus did not merely appear to be human. He was not merely partially human. He didn't go back and forth between human and God. He was fully human and experienced the full range of human experience except sin. And the big idea before us today that we're going to unpack is that Jesus took on human flesh specifically to restore humanity to the glory and position that God intended from the beginning. Jesus took on humanity in order to restore humanity to the glory and position that God intended from the beginning. And this specifically has to do with Jesus' suffering and death. So let's look at this passage. Let me read through it so you can see the forest, the big picture, and then we'll zoom in and look at the individual trees, if you will. Again, there's a lot in here. We're not going to cover all of it today, um, but see if you can get that big picture. Jesus' humanity for the sake of restoring us to the glory and position that God intended us from the beginning. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, that is Jesus, of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So there's a few Old Testament uh, references here. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then the author sums up what he was meant by those quotations. Verse 14, since therefore the children, that is us, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
For surely it is not to angel, not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, us, humanity. Therefore he had to be make, made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right. I said there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Let's start with verse 10, because this kind of it, the thesis statement here gives us the big idea. Let me read verse 10 one more time. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So I want to first start with that phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. That's what God is doing. That's, his, that's a purpose statement. And, and no, sons does not mean that we are only talking about males here. This is referring to a familial relationship with God that affects both men and women. This is all of us. Now, it's been a little while since we've been in Hebrews because we took a break for that church planning series, but the word glory should stand out if you remember back. Because earlier in this chapter, in chapter 2, the author quotes a passage from Psalm 8 that also mentions glory. So in verse 6, if you turn back a few verses, the author quotes Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. There's glory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And this passage harkens back to creation, to Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we are told that God created mankind to display something of his glory and honor and to rule, exercise rule and stewardship over creation. And all of this is meant to point back to God himself. Our image bearers, image bearing, our rule is all meant to be a mirror, if you will, of him. It's meant to be a pointer to him and his perfections. It's important to understand this. God didn't merely create us because he needed somebody to rule over. He created us to be glorious, to be majestic, to be impressive displays of his character, his being. He created us with beauty and wisdom and goodness and purpose. Every single person has this built in. Every single person has value because of it. This is why murder is wrong, why hate is wrong. It's not merely that it hurts another being. It, it mars the image of God in one another. Now, we know that this is not the end of the story. We know that there is a serious problem. And you have to read to the end of this passage to fully grasp it, but we know that there is a problem called sin, and that sin leads to death. Mankind has rebelled against its creator. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we thought we knew better. We didn't trust God. We didn't trust that his ways and his commands and his rule was good, but thought that we could do better. 
we thought that our rule, even if over our own lives, would lead to better results than God's rule. But instead, we found that our rule brings chaos and destruction. We, we rule in evil ways. Even if your own re only responsibility is to take care of your own life, we make a mess of things. We make a mess of our own lives. We bring ruin. And the glorious image of God that we were meant to display is broken, is distorted. Tragically, every one of us knows this to be true. You see, our glory and rule wasn't ever meant to be an independent glory and rule. We weren't meant to, to hear from God, here is your role, here is your glory, now go and do whatever you want with it and figure it out. No, our glory and rule was always a reflective, imaged glory and rule that comes from God, given by God, and reflects back the greatness of God. It is always meant to, to point to and give witness to him. And so when the author of Hebrews says, when he talks about bringing many sons to glory, this is showing, this is saying that there is a need for humanity to be restored back to glory. If there was not any sin, there wouldn't be this need to bring many sons to glory. We had glory it was lost and it needs to be restored. We had honor and goodness and beauty and a right relationship with God and it was lost. This is true of all of humanity. This is true of you. This is true of me. Jesus has come to bring many sons and daughters, men and women, back to glory. And the point of this passage is that this requires nothing less than God becoming man. It was man who lost glory through sin. It is man who needs glory restored in a way that only God can do. And for him to do that requires the incarnation, God becoming man. As you continue to unpack that first verse, it says, It was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the suffering in view in this passage does specifically have to do with Jesus' death. We'll, we'll get to that. But Jesus also suffered in many other ways. He suffered merely because he was human. This is what the next few verses show. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, um, like Josh's prayer this morning, sanctified here means to set apart and be dedicated to God once and for all. This is what Jesus does for us. All have one source, or all are of one. And then we have these several quotes from the Old Testament, and the point of them is summed up in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Again, the point is that Jesus, while divine, becomes and remains to this day fully human. He's not partially one or the other. He doesn't go back and forth. He's fully God fully man, as the church has long confessed. And in becoming human, Jesus suffered. Because suffering is a part of what it means to be human in a broken world. We, we all suffer from minor annoyances 
to emotional trauma, to physical pain, to death. We suffer as a result of our own sin and foolishness. We suffer as a result of other people's sin and foolishness. We suffer as a result of just the, the world being broken. Everything from natural disasters to sickness, disease, weakening of our minds and bodies, and ultimately death. And Jesus did too. All except suffering as a result of his own sin. Jesus suffered hunger and thirst. He suffered being tempted by the devil. He suffered the death of loved ones. He suffered betrayal by those closest to him. He suffered being mocked and jeered and made fun of and misunderstood and falsely accused. He suffered the agony of an impending, physically tortuous death. And he suffered being forsaken by God and punished for our sins. This is God willingly putting himself in a position to suffer in every way that we do and more. He was made like us in every respect. Perhaps you've seen those marketing campaigns that say he gets us, Jesus gets us. That's correct. Now, that's not the totality of the gospel message. We need to hear more than that we are understood and sympathized with. But he does get us. And this should be a source of great comfort for those who belong to him. One of the lies that we are tempted to believe is that no one gets us. No one could understand what we go through. No one has felt the things that we feel. No one has experienced what we have suffered in the way that we do. That's not true. God does. God has. And he doesn't understand just because he's God and he sees it from afar. He understands because he became human and lived like we do, suffered like we do. Hebrews goes on to tell us in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And the implication that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His ability to understand us, the part of the reason that he became man and lived as we do and, and was tempted on all of this is to give us confidence to draw near to him. To give us, to, to correct the lies that, well, he couldn't understand. He wouldn't receive me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. No, he can and does sympathize with us. Now, this is some of what Jesus has done, but the question that stands out to me as I read verse 10 is, why is this fitting? Why is it fitting that Jesus does this, that our Savior be a suffering Savior? That our Savior be made perfect through suffering. Now, being made perfect there is not, does not, ta is not talking about in a moral sense, as if Jesus was not morally perfect but became perfect. It is a being made perfect in fulfilling God's plans for him. Fulfilling what he came to do. But again, why was it necessary and appropriate, fitting, 
that this be done through suffering. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. The rest of this passage gives us four reasons that it's fitting for Jesus to be a suffering Savior. So we'll walk through those. The first reason Jesus' suffering is fitting is found in verse 14. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So sin leads to death. The wages of sin are death, we are told. And the reality of death ruins the, the calling and the purpose that God has given to humanity. Death ruins the glory that we were made to display. And so to write the ship, to restore humanity to glory and to its purpose, a death has to happen. For God to save us in a just way, a death had to occur. And yet only humans, only a human can die. God cannot die. And only a human could die in the place of other humans. Only a human could taste death for everyone, as we read in, chapter, in verse 9. So God becomes human to die as a human in the place of humans. And part of what he's doing in this is destroying the work of the devil. The devil is the one who first tempted us to disbelieve God, distrust God. The devil tells lies, and he tells us that we cannot trust God. That God does not have our good in mind. And we've all believed this in, to one degree or another, leading to death. The devil only has the power of death because we have sinned and because God has permitted it. But in the cross, that power is broken. Jesus dies to defeat the work and power of the devil. In what appeared to be the moment of greatest weakness and Shame and defeat was actually the moment, a moment of greatest victory and power and glory. And right now, each and every one of us, each and every one of you, either belongs to the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. There's no middle ground. And the determiner is what we do with Jesus on the cross. Do we run to Jesus for salvation? Or do we seek to justify ourselves, seek to live our, out our own glory, which we have found a million ways to do? And this leads to the second reason Jesus' suffering was fitting. Verse 15. He died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Now, this picture is a far cry from the picture of humanity crowned with glory and honor. Back from Psalm 8. With everything in subjection under his feet. You see the contrast between these. Created, crowned with glory and honor. Everything in subjection under his feet. Lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Sin and death have disrupted God's call for mankind to rule wisely and justly and to display his image as image bearers. One commentator says this, Death casts a shadow over the entirety of life, hovering like a specter over every dimension of existence. 
Death means that human beings do not reign but are ruled over by a foreign power, for they fear their eventual demise that comes inexorably upon them. In every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow, reminding us that our joy is short-lived. The message of Ecclesiastes, right? <laughs> if death has the last word, the whole prospect of life is pretty meaningless. I mean, you can live to just grasp every ounce of pleasure and comfort and happiness that you can. Just grab life by the horns. You only live once. But it passes by by a breath, and we really know that it's all meaningless. Or you can just be more realistic and just live a dejected kind of life, realizing that everything is meaningless. This is the message of many of the poems and songs and, and art and movies of our world. Death casts this shadow over all of life. We are affected by the reality of death more than we realize, even if by the fact that we try so hard to push off the thought. But if death is not the end, if death does not have the last word, if there is a power greater than death, if we are not defined in the end by merely what we can get out of these 70, 80, 90, 100 years, then that changes everything. And that's the point. That's what God was and is doing through Jesus' death and resurrection. Death no longer has a sting. Death is no longer the final word. We are no longer slaves to the fear of death in Jesus. Our lives are not determined merely by what we get out of this life, how much we get to do, how much we get to experience, how much we possess. No, Jesus has come to restore humanity to its intended position and role. And what this requires is first and foremost to restore us to a right, right relationship with God. It is not only that our bodies weaken and die, it is that we have been cut off from a right relationship with God, become enemies with God. So this leads to a third reason Jesus' suffering was fitting. Verse 17, he became a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you know Hebrews, uh, you know the theme of high priest, of Jesus as a high priest, comes up again and again. This is the first of 17 references to high priest. So we'll keep coming back to this. What is a high priest? Well, in the Old Testament, according to God's commands, the, the high priest represented the people to God and God to the people. He was a, a go-between, a representative, a mediator between God and man. And part of this role was to offer gifts and sacrifices and offerings for people to God, for sin and for worship. High priests were called to be faithful and loyal to God and, and to call the people to be faithful and loyal. Not all of them did this well. Some of them did this in incredibly wicked ways. All of them were sinful. And so Jesus comes as the greater high priest who is perfectly faithful to God, who offers gifts and sacrifices to God for us, but more than that is himself the gift and offering. He gives himself, his body, to God for the sins of humanity. His blood is shed 
His body is broken. This is what that big theological word in there, propitiation, or some of your translations might say atonement, but propitiation is a lot more fun to say, is getting at. It means both the forgiving of, doing away with sins, and the satisfying of the just and righteous wrath of God for sin. And so here, at the very end of the passage, we finally get the reason for the underlying problem. The reason that our glory has been lost and that there is death. Sinful humanity and the holy presence of God are at odds. And this cannot just be washed over. This cannot just be shrugged at. Something deep and lasting must be done. A great judgment must be born so that a great salvation can be won. And this is what Jesus does. This is what our God does for us. And he must do it as a human being. And this leads to the fourth and final reason we see that Jesus' suffering is fitting. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can help those who are being tempted. Now, it's possible in considering all that God has done for us in Jesus to merely think of this in cold and detached and objective terms, kind of like a math problem. My sin plus Jesus' death for sin equals forgiveness and salvation minus judgment. Now, that's really important. That math problem must be true, and we need it. And whether we feel it or not, it must be true. It's necessary. But there are also subjective, and I'm not sure that's the best word, but let me explain what I mean. There are also ongoing, personal, real change aspects to God's salvation. And verse 18 provides a good example. He is our helper. Jesus does not just save us. He is our Savior. We don't come to him merely to get something from him. We come to him as our Savior. It was fitting that he become human and live as a human and suffer and die as a human so that God might not only save us objectively, that's true, but also be himself our Savior and our helper. So that we might not only receive something from him, but stay unchanged in our relationship to him, but that we might come to him in confidence, in love, and worship. God is not only about improving our situation. He is about our hearts. Changing our hearts. An imperfect but helpful analogy. If you open up the mail tomorrow and inside there is a voucher for a brand new car, and an explanation that a billionaire somewhere in the Midwest who was dying as his last wish directed that all his funds be used to give new cars to everyone who needed one. You would be excited. You'd be very thankful. Perhaps you'd shed some tears. You'd probably look for a way to write a, a thank you card to said billionaire. But I don't think you would be overwhelming with love and affection for this man or, or woman. 
You don't know him. He doesn't know you. He didn't do this out of any specific love for you. For all you know, he could be a, a wicked and evil man who just couldn't think of anything better to do with his money. However, if you open up the mail tomorrow and there's a letter from a close friend of yours who knows you deeply need a car and has included a $20,000 or $30,000 check for you to go purchase one, if, furthermore, you find out that this individual has sold their home and downsized, got ridden, rid of most of their possessions, and become poor to help you out, all to make this happen for you. And furthermore, they assured you that there's nothing you can do about it. It's all said and done. There's no way you can pay for it. You would be overwhelmed in a completely different way. You would well up with great affection and love for this friend, and for the rest of your life, you would never forget what they did for you at great cost to themselves. And you would seek to continually show your appreciation for them. Because they did it for you. This is a faint and imperfect picture of what God has done for us. What God is seeking to be for us. A personal Savior who knows our situation who has walked in our shoes, who has himself suffered like us, even experienced a death that was more than we could ever imagine, bearing our sin, in order to work good for us, to bring us to himself, to restore us to glory, to be our daily and ongoing merciful and faithful high priest. What God is desiring is that we wouldn't come to him merely to get something from him, like a rich friend who we know is very generous and will probably say yes if we ask him. No, but that we would come to him for himself. That we would come to get him and find him. And so as you read through this passage, and encourage you to continue to, to read through it, Notice who God is to you. Notice who God desires to be to you. He's not just a one-time source of salvation or life improvement. He aims to be an ongoing, continual helper, advocate, one that we run to for compassion, understanding, forgiveness, and strength. He aims to be the one that we find in whom we find our greatest strength and hope and purpose and joy and comfort, that we not just look to him to get things, but to find him. Another way to say this is simply that Jesus is the gospel. Being a Christian is not just about believing certain doctrines or agreeing to certain morals or viewing the world in a certain way. It is about coming to Jesus. It is about having a heart and mind once resistant to him and his lordship and his salvation, radically changed, 180 degree changed, turning to embrace him fully, joyfully as Lord and Savior. You don't get the benefits of the gospel apart from coming to Jesus. You don't get the benefits of the gospel apart from coming to Jesus. And as we come to him, and as we receive what he has done for us, he is restoring us to glory. 
in Jesus, God is restoring you and all of us, all of God's people, to the glory and honor he intended from us, for us. He's freeing us from sin and death and all the destruction it causes. And he's freeing us for a life lived for the glory and delight and joy of our creator. And let me just end by pointing you to the very next verse in Hebrews, verse 3, which is where our title of our series comes from. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our faith. It's almost humorously simple. Consider Jesus. But that really is the point. Jesus is our confession. This chapters 1, chapters 2, this has all just been about who is Jesus. And the point is that we would consider, not just like mull it over in our heads, but deeply consider in our hearts and minds and come to Jesus and confess him alone as our salvation, as our hope, as our peace and sufficiency in the face of trials, as our hope and comfort in the face of sin and guilt, as our satisfaction and joy in the face of many temptations. Consider Jesus. Confess Jesus. There's no end to that. You can't do that too much. Let's pray.